One night in the early 70s, I sat in front of the television with my two older brothers watching astronauts drive a dune buggy across the surface of the moon. I remember watching jets of moon dust fly off the metal wheels as they sped around in their spacesuits. My eldest brother took me outside and pointed up at the moon, which wasn't quite full yet. He told me, those astronauts on TV, they're right there. I remember thinking that if I had squinted hard enough, I could see them. That wouldn't matter, because when I was older, I'd have a moon buggy too, and maybe I would get to walk around like they did, hitting golf balls and throwing frisbees right off the edge and into space. On my way up there, I might even stay at the space station Hilton, just like Haywood Floyd did in 2001 Space Odyssey. The Apollo missions were cancelled after Apollo 17 left the moon in 1972 because of politics and money, and we've never been back. That moon buggy is still up there, along with an American flag, bags of urine and poop, and a plaque that reads, Dear men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 AD. We came in peace for all mankind. We went to the moon because Kennedy told us to. Space is open to us now, and our eagerness to share its meaning is not governed by the efforts of others. We go into space because whatever mankind must undertake, free men must fully share. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. My iPhone in 1972 would have the equivalent computational power to a room full of supercomputers. Why haven't we used this power to get us back to the moon, farther out into space? I believe they want you to give in. When you're 12 in the 80s in middle-class America, I mean, nothing bad ever really happens. I was a suburban kid. The world was small. I'd never seen people randomly kind of crying on the street. Uh, We were going to space. We'd been to space 20-plus years before. I watched Buck Rogers, like, all the time. So I just assumed that I would get out of high school, and I would buy a ticket, and I would go to space because that's what people did. And then a couple of days after my birthday... I come into school and like the bell rang and then people started crying and screaming and I didn't know what was going on and then they started turning the TVs on and it was the Challenger disaster. And that was the, the most vivid memory of my, my early teens. It was the worst thing that had ever happened in my lifetime. But then it, it passed and we worked through it and we understood what the problem was technologically and we went back to space. So I just assumed that by the time I was the age that I am now, we would ha- be in space and I'd be able to go. And what happened? I always assumed we'd go and I'm still here. And that's what we're going to talk about today on This Developer's Life. Space. 
What's it going to take to get us back to space? This Developer's Life is brought to you by Codebrush for Visual Studio. We appreciate their support. With consumer-first declaration, powerful templates, smart selection tools, intelligent code analysis, innovative navigation, and an unrivaled collection of visual refactorings all working together, your development productivity will increase dramatically. Get Codebrush. You'll be glad you did. Check them out at devexpress.com slash Codebrush. called my friend Dan Bricklin. He's often known as the father of the spreadsheet, but he's also got engineering degrees from MIT, and he's a really smart guy. But he has the history because he remembers seeing us go to space for the very first time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that was, um, they took off on my birthday um, in, um, in July of 1969. And, um, you know, that was, uh, that was really special. I got to see, I watched that. In fact, um, uh, what was it? Um, years later, when I was at, I had gotten, I had been in like science fair thing and ended up in this National Science Teacher Foundation um, program, and where I ended up down at Goddard Space Flight Center, where we all got together. It was kind of fun to go see all that stuff there. That was the the prize was for us to get together, and then came in the mail. I guess a year or so later, I got an invitation to go watch a, um, a one of the the liftoffs. To actually go down, which unfortunately I didn't go down, but I have an invitation to go see Apollo 13 take off. Apollo 13? Houston, we have a problem. Wow. Wow. So when he says he was supposed to be there for that, was that in the room next to the guy with the crew cut, like in mission control? I, I don't know. I presume that there's some kind of a viewing room for relatives and friends of the of the launch. So I presume that he was going to be some kind of friend of the launch. Oh my God, that is amazing. Uh, what an official invitation to join them. And Apollo 13, which is one of my favorite movies, because it has the best scene for an engineer. I use it sometimes when I talk, I show that scene. The one where they they have the problem with you, the, the uh, CO2 was, was building up and they needed to have this canister. This other canister had to fit a square thing into a round hole or something, a square peg in a round hole. And they say, okay, engineers, <clears throat> here's everything they have up here and dump it on a desk and say, you have to make this connect to that. And this is all you have. And that's what programming is like. That's what engin- you have to work with real things. And they build it and they make it happen. And it starts out with, well, you take a piece of duct tape, <laughs> you know, you know, and they're using duct tape and uh, it's, it's a great scene. And apparently it's true. Um, and that movie has a lot of things about the joy of an engineer. And as an engineer, you love that. Did you ever see the movie Gizmo by um, Howard K. Smith? The movie is about people who are driven to build some, or to try something with flight. Um, they, they have weightlessness and they show space flight and then human flight. And they show these pictures of old videos of people trying to do human-powered flight. And they're the most ridiculous thing. And we all laugh. They're black and white and they're flapping their hands, you know. And they're doing this and they're so determined looking. And then the music changes to Pachelbel's Canon. 
and, and it goes from black and white to color and somebody in a in a in an ultralight uh, hang glider skis off the side of a mountain and just goes through the air like you wouldn't believe and it's the most amazing feeling to see that because here all these people tried and they tried they didn't know they didn't know the physics they finally got all the pieces together we've tried and it finally works it's like when you finally got that iPad in your hand this is what we have been envisioning look at the things that Alan Kay was showing back I mean I remember watching looking in that issue of Scientific American where Alan Kay was showing the Dyna book what he was proposing and Alan proposed this 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 book that you know the size that you could you could and and he then invented things for it using the mouse early on mouse um, with the alto and uh, object-oriented languages and here using object-oriented language objective C we're now using the the iPad exists which is today's incarnation of that vision and that's sort of how engineering goes question I wanted to ask that is a hard question and you have to forgive my ignorance I was born in 74 okay. so the, the context is from a 40 year old person's perspective I, I assume that the computing power that took us to space was about as much as my smartwatch has maybe Less. A, yeah. a calculator I mean it's it's K yeah it was uh, I mean remember when they were landing on the moon um, they were having interrupt overflows. Remember that was there were errors as they were coming. They were having some interrupt overflow stuff. And friends of mine who were in, in you know that was the thing to work on the space project. Uh, this was after this was the space shuttle was the thing to do when you graduated. You had nothing else to do. What the hell work on space? But actually in the you know in the spacecraft they were extremely low power. The things that they were using, um, and which is but they had people to do some of the stuff. But even all the calculations they did to be able to get to the moon, uh, you know, that was done with computers that today we take that computing power just to calculate billionths of a second difference in things and do transforms to be able to keep the 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 GPS in the car that you're not looking at up to date. Think how much computing power we're using for that. And we just let it run and they you know they had those huge rooms filled with that in the old days they were using computers that were so not powerful and you just had to be very clever and get to the essence of what you wanted to do nowadays this was something that really got me a few months ago this three uh, this um IBM PC emulator I don't know if you've seen it there's a there's a javascript IBM PC emulator that a person put together and they they because I have a copy of VisiCalc that I had posted that had been kept that didn't have uh, for the IBM PC that didn't have copy protection on it it actually runs in there and you actually he actually had to slow down the the emulator that was written in JavaScript that runs in today's browsers to be able to run at the right speed um, because we had timing loops to do sound like the beep was done in a timing loop which was done in without interrupts. It was done, I guess, knowing the speed of the, the processor. Um, so we have come a long way in terms of speed. My God, we have so much <laughs> computing power at our disposal. The things that we can program and the experiences that we can enable, I just don't understand this. 
it's almost too much, but we're, we'll probably screw it all up, right? It'll just take one bug, and that's the thing. Uh, that's true. I, was, I had a great interview with Douglas Crockford on um, the Hansel Minutes podcast recently, and we ended up calling the show Bugs Considered Harmful. And he said that the best way to improve software quality is to write fewer bugs. And I asked him, like, what do you mean by that? And he's like, well, just suck it up and think harder and do better and be smarter and write software better. So it makes me feel like there's a lot of enterprises out there that are writing software like it's the 90s. And maybe they should be writing software like it's the 50s. Why aren't we there? Well, some things are hard. I mean, think, look how long it takes for things to come about. You know, um, you know. There's the demo. There's a big difference between the demo and you know the proof of concept and something that actually works twenty four seven for regular people who don't call you for support all the time, you know. And um, all these little extra things. And and also we had some very bright people back then uh, who worked on it. Not that they're not bright now, but um, they were aimed just at that one problem. And if you think about it, if you had to spend just on those, you would figure it out. I mean, it's solving different problems. I mean, the people 2,000 years ago did a pretty good job writing stuff. I mean, we still, people worship the stuff that is written 2,000 years ago, right? You know, they were pretty good writers. (laughs) Somehow I feel though, if we, if and when we go back to the moon, we're going to screw it up by making the computers too complicated. And some bug is going to kill us all. Oh, the second when? Why don't we just use a Raspberry Pi <laughs> to go to the moon? Well, we might be using a thousand of them, right? Uh, well, we may build something out of it. Um, when we go to the moon again, um, maybe, uh, maybe for that one, uh, maybe after the person who grew up playing with the Raspberry Pi, like I did with Lincoln Logs and Erector sets, will be the one who's programming this stuff. Your kids have iPads, so do mine. I mean, we've got iPads and Xbox Ones and Connect, and, you know, there is a child out there right now using these devices who is going to become a pioneer of whatever the next space thing we haven't figured out yet, and they're going to do the whole thing with a Raspberry Pi and a cardboard tube. I, I want to meet this kid. Oh, you will, sir. You will. So you never know what they're going to be using. Um, there is that second system effect, um, which was pointed out by Brooks in the book, The Mythical Man Month, how you build something the first time and then you say, oh, I'll fix all the problems I had with it. And you build this monstrosity the second time and have to throw it away because you're fixing all the problems and you end up with new ones. Um, you're worried about that. Uh, on the other hand, maybe we'll do a better job. You know, when you look at the movie HAL 2001, which was uh, designed... The movie was done talking to a lot of experts at the time. They talked about what they thought was going to be, and they have what pretty much looks like an iPad there. So, oh, and there, in order to be able to make it look like they were, um, sometimes in order to make things look like you're weightless, they actually had to go into the Vomit Comet, and that's how they simulated it. And now, of course, they can do it with CGI (laughs) and a green screen. Do you think that you would spend the money? What is it, like a quarter million dollars to take you up to, what is it, 30, uh, 60,000 feet, 80,000 feet and call it space? Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, like uh, like uh, uh, Simone did a couple times when he went up there. And, uh, well, and now Justin Bieber's going yeah, to space. Going, yeah, that, uh, well, I mean, 
you know, I look at it and Charles went up twice. He can afford it. Charles Simonyi used to work for Microsoft and oversaw the creation of the Office suite of apps. In April 2007, because he has a billion dollars to his name, he flew aboard the Soyuz TMA-10, becoming the fifth space tourist. Charles has a lot of money and really likes space. I'm not personally on a first-name basis with a lot of billionaires, but when Dan refers to Charles, he's talking about Charles Simonyi, space tourist. He went up twice, but he flies, as I remember, he flies helicopters. I don't know if I would want to be a person who is a helicopter pilot, take a chance to learn that. I'm a little risk averse. So on the other hand, as a child, I had pictures of space things hanging on my wall. I, you know, I dreamed of that. What, what you dream about is interesting and in what you end up doing. Uh, you know the story about Helen Greiner, who, mm-hmm. who did uh, iRobot? That when she was a child, she, uh, as, she, as I've heard it from her, when she was a child, she saw R2-D2 in the movie and said, wow, that's the coolest thing. And then she found out that it wasn't real and she was devastated. So then when she grew up and went to school and helped found a company, she helped found iRobot which built real robots that really clean the floor and do menial tasks around the house and really disarm real bombs. And, you know, so things that we see as children, as what we want to do, we often end up building. just listen to Dan all day. Thank you so much, Dan, for uh, for having me interview you. You know, I just realized that we've got the inventor of the spreadsheet, uh, the VisiCalc, Dan Bricklin, and now we've got Paul Lutis, uh, whose best-known program is Apple Writer, which is a wildly and internationally successful word processing program for Apple computers. We've got the spreadsheet guy and the word processor guy both talking about space. They solved two problems that we needed solved. And now that's done. Word processors and spreadsheets, we've got that handled. Who's solving the great problems today? Who's the modern-day Thomas Edison, today's Tony Stark? Have you seen Elon Musk's grasshopper oh, rocket? Elon Musk. That guy is amazing. No, I haven't. He's like Tony Stark. He's our, he's yeah. our Thomas Edison. This thing is wow. amazing. I mean, we've all seen uh, rockets take off, and there's a lot of mm-hmm. smoke and pomp and circumstance, and they go straight up, and then they're multi-stage, and they break apart. And then, you know, you can recover pieces of them. Like the space shuttle, for example, has solid rocket boosters. Mm -hmm. And you can get those solid rocket boosters and recover them on one launch and use them on another. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's not exactly reusable from a rocket technology perspective. But the grasshopper doesn't really fly. It hops. It'll hop up and it'll then come back down and then guide itself back to a clean landing. Whoa. And it uses this SpaceX engine that's the Merlin 1D engine. It burns kerosene and liquid oxygen, produces wow. about 150,000 pounds of thrust. And it's the closest thing we've got to, you know, reasonably cost-effective approach to spaceflight, at least as far as we can get today. You know, we talked about, we keep raising the question, what's it going to take to get us back to space? And it's somebody like Elon Musk, that's for sure. 
Absolutely. It's going to someone who is thinking completely outside the box in ways that and, and has the money to back it up. Have you, did you see the SpaceX launch the other day? I did. Yeah, they're putting a satellite into orbit. It was a historic launch. It was a, a really interesting thing to, to see. And for someone who has been editing this show and stitching the audio together, you know, at points I was like, oh, everything was so exciting back in the day. And it's not that way today. Why not? And then I watched SpaceX and I think, well, actually it is. I just maybe I'm not paying enough attention. Yeah, SpaceX is utterly amazing, and I I wanted to talk to someone who could really speak to space and space travel with some authority, so I called Paul Ludis. Uh, he created some components for the space shuttle and, in fact, created the mathematical model of the solar system that JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, used during the Viking Mars mission. So not only did Paul Ludis create Apple Rider, which is a wildly successful word processing program, but he, he also has been deeply involved in getting us to space and has really strong opinions about uh, SpaceX and what's next. I think what SpaceX is doing is super important on a bunch of different levels. One, it's important because they're doing something efficiently that NASA probably could not do. And two, they're doing it as a contractor to, to NASA in competition with other private companies, which even though, the, you know, some people say it doesn't make any difference because they're getting money from the government to do what they're doing. But it does matter because NASA has wisely contracted with two different companies who, and they are, they're understand implicitly that they're in competition with each other and they're both contracted to provide ferry services to the ISS. And um, obviously... The, person, the company that does it best with fewer failures and with lower costs will get all the, the future business. And NASA knows it, and the two contractors know it. So it's completely different from having a single contractor uh, building the space shuttle like Rockwell International did, where they weren't in competition with anyone. And NASA actually being responsible for running uh, the entire program. In this case, SpaceX runs the program. NASA says, we need uh, such and such to be shipped to the ISS. Go ahead and do it. And, and at that point, SpaceX takes over and does the whole thing from, from management, scheduling, everything else. They do it all themselves. They don't have to uh, submit their spacecraft to NASA and then have NASA take over and, and manage the launch facility. <clears throat> That's all SpaceX is doing. So it's to a much greater extent isolated, uh, independent from NASA and NASA bureaucracy than the space, the space programs that I was involved with. And I regard that, by the way, I regard that all as a very good thing, and I foresee it as um, a repeat of what happened with aircraft. Because in the early days of aircraft development, the Army was the only contractor, the only customer for what the Wright brothers had created and what, for, what Glenn Curtis and others had created later on. It was all Army military. And then only gradually in the 20s and 30s did, did a transition take place where private companies wanted aircraft to do private services like ferrying people from place to place. And so this, we're seeing the same thing happen again. The transition from the military and the government being the only customer for, for airplanes to private companies creating and using airplanes for private purposes like, like passenger transport, we're seeing exactly the same thing in spacecraft where the government was the first customer. Then now we're in the middle of the transition to private enterprise where people will go, uh, I want to go up into space, so I'll go to this company, they have the best deal and get ferried up into orbit and look around, take a few pictures and come down again, that'll be all private enterprise in the future. And I think that's a great thing. And I think people should be prepared for some disasters. Um, 
that, that have always taken place in the early days of technology. Um, and there, I'm sure there will be some of those. But um, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, uh, it'll be a commodity service. It won't be, people won't have to feel as though they're on the cutting edge anymore. There'll be, there'll be craft approximately as safe as an airliner going up into space and coming down again. Uh, and it, it won't at all be like this extraordinarily high price for a single suborbital pop. I think that it'll be interesting to see what happens when people realize how short their exposure to space is in a, in a suborbital um, Alan Shepard-style um, flight that's basically a big parabola. It's, it's easy to be an armchair quarterback and look at this, as, as well as an armchair quarterback who's read a lot of sci-fi, and say to myself, hey, you know, they're not really going up into space, space. I mean, they're going up until there's no more blue, but can we really call that space? As it turns out, uh, most of the orbital velocity, uh, the orbital heights that people uh, associate with various kinds of spacecraft, all of them have some residual gas pressure. The ISS, for example, is at a very high altitude. Nevertheless, they have to reboost themselves because of the air, the air resistance they encounter. Whatever their altitude is, it's, it's at the upper limit of what the shuttle could achieve. It's much higher than a typical low Earth orbit, but it isn't high enough to not have um, a, a tiny residual atmosphere. So it's a very, good, a very good question with no fixed answer. And most of the answers are arbitrary, like 100 kilometers. 100 kilometers, some people say, well, that's the beginning of space. Well. Obviously, the ISS is higher than that, and yet they have, they have, um, they're crashing into air molecules all the time, and they have to recover that. They have to resupply that energy by uh, using a small booster to bring themselves back up to their nominal orbital height periodically. If they didn't, and once once the ISS is um, program ends, uh, they, if they wanted to, they could just let it decay down and fall into the Earth's orb, the Earth's uh, atmosphere. Which is, I don't think that's what they're going to do. They're going to put a uh, a booster on it and drop it into a particular location for maximum safety. Which, by the way, the, the Skylab, that's something they didn't do with Skylab. They abandoned Skylab in orbit and let it fall wherever it would and ended up landing, if, if I'm not mistaken, it landed in Western Australia. Well, the reason the ISS is located where it is is because the Russian launch service and our launch service, the Soyuz and the space shuttle, both couldn't go very much higher than they go. And uh, if we had put the, the, uh, the International Space Station any higher, it would be out of reach of our launch services. We wouldn't be able to supply it. Actually, I had a, a conversation about this on Reddit before abandoning Reddit. Is Somebody said, how come we can't just boost uh, the ISS and put it around the moon or put it in uh, one of the Lagrange points, stable orbit points on the left hand or the right hand side of the moon or somewhere like that. And my answer was, well, that's great, but we wouldn't be able to get to it. So that's the only reason, is, is that it happens to be the upper limit for the, for the shuttle and I don't know if it's necessarily the upper limit for Soyuz, but it's close. And that's the reason. It had to be accessible. It had to be somewhere where we could get to reasonably uh, efficiently. So why aren't we going farther out into space and staying longer? Two things. One, if we create a if we create a mission, a space program uh, that is a long duration, and we supply the people in the space program with enough supplies, and that they could last a year or two, then that problem goes away. But the fact is, the ISS is occupied by people who rarely stay more than six months. Some have stayed longer, but a typical stay at the ISS is on the order of six months. And obviously, then. It had, there has to be some economical way to resupply the ISS and ferry astronauts up and down again. And that wouldn't be possible if the ISS was, was for example, around the moon 
or at a much higher orbit. For example, you could put the ISS up at geostationary. I'm not sure that would be particularly useful because the, the, the view would get rather boring after a while. You'd always be looking at the same part of the Earth. But it's, it's 22,300 miles. That's too far away to, um, to have ordinary ferry services where you take people and supplies back and forth. There's nothing actually that can do it. And we have to remember something about uh, geostationary orbit. If you put something in geostationary orbit that you expect to come back down again, it has to have a great deal more fuel and uh, complexity than a craft that where you just push a spacecraft up and drop it into a geostationary slot and leave it there forever. Uh, that requires a certain amount of mass for it to accomplish its objective. But if it has to come back down again, it has to have another rocket motor and more, space, more fuel, that sort of thing. Uh, that's a completely different proposition. Uh, well, I, th I think uh, if I went up to low Earth orbit and stayed there two weeks, I think after that I'd be ready to go come back. Moon to Mars, on the other hand, if, I, if, if somebody said I could go to Mars, um, at my age, I would do it in a second without any guarantee of being able to come back. And I think a lot of people would agree. I think that if uh, the question has been asked online, and so I actually do know the answer. It's, uh, it's commonly heard that people would say, I, I would sign up in a flash. At, at my age, um, if I got a chance to go to, the, to Mars and explore a little bit and then run out of oxygen or run out of food, uh, where do I sign up? In the 60s and 70s, when when or even earlier when people were doing um, test flights and there were test pilots and people were dying. I mean, people were trying to do crazy stuff, whether it be yeah. trying to go 300 miles an hour on land or whether they were trying to break through various sound barriers. Yeah. Uh, were people declaring, we've got to stop it, people are dying. But if someone dies in space, then, well, clearly we should shut down the space program. Actually, actually there's a, an important distinction. <clears throat> when the Apollo 1 fire took place, which was a ground accident, not a... Not a an accident in orbit, and three astronauts were killed, there was one reaction. And the one reaction was, this is terrible, it's a tragedy, and we should do something about it. But these people knew what they were getting into. So um, people said, let's just move ahead, let's fix the problem, and, and carry on and make our way to the moon. These three individuals uh, were the, the very best astronauts we had, and it was stupid and wrong that they were killed, but they knew what they were getting into. They, they, understood and accepted the risk. They gave informed consent. Now, when Krista McAuliffe got killed in the Challenger disaster, she was a teacher. And in those days, NASA was saying, it's a bus that goes to space, that sort of thing. And so that was completely different because she didn't understand what the risks were. In fact, none of the astronauts at that time in, this, in the program knew what was going on because NASA management wasn't revealing the sorts of issues that they were having. They had a huge long list of safety issues that they were keeping from the astronaut corps. And when Sally Ride left the astronaut program, one of the reasons was I think she had accomplished what she intended to accomplish, but another was to object to the isolation that astronauts felt from the decision-making process. And one of the changes, by the way, after Challenger was that an astronaut was, was going to be required to be present at any decision-making panel about uh, making a flight or dealing with safety issues. There had never been an astronaut on those committee meetings uh, to speak for the interests of astronauts until after the Challenger accident. I think that was a terrible omission. Anyway, the, so it's, it's the difference between Gus, Gus Grissom and, and Krista McAuliffe is that Gus Grissom was a professional test pilot. He knew what the risks were, and he 
He granted informed consent. Crystal McAuliffe certainly did not do that. Uh, well, I think the main reason we aren't going to Mars isn't because people are worried about safety. It's just too expensive. And re reoccupying the moon, which will be taking place sooner than going to Mars for sure, um, people are just asking pragmatic questions like, what can we do there? Can we mine minerals? Can we find some hydrogen-3 and bring it back? That sort of thing. Um, and I think there are, that, that, that it is a professional context that people will be giving informed consent and the risks will be known. I think, the, I think the Challenger accident was unique in the history of the space program because of how much was being concealed from the astronauts and from the public. When, when, people, when, when uh, politicians decided on this teacher and space program, they didn't think it was going to backfire on them because they believed what NASA was telling them, that NASA was saying, you know, this is a, space, a, a routine uh, craft that can go into space with perfect safety, and they were, they were aware that that wasn't the case, but they just weren't telling people, and it all came out in the hearings afterwards. Did they know the risks? That's the thing. If you're an astronaut, I'm pretty sure you know the risks. But if you're a passenger with a bunch of astronauts, I think it's fair to say you might not know the risks. But I could definitely say that if I didn't have a wife and kids and there was a trip to Mars and there were a lot of risks and not coming back was one of them, I'd still go to freaking Mars because I would be like, I'm on Mars. I mean, in the 60s, we were all in, right? We were going to space. We're going to land on the moon because Kennedy said we had to do it, and we had to keep up with the Russians. We can't let them know that America's not up for the challenge. Show them what America's made of. We're going to the moon. And, you know, all that ended when the Apollo program was canceled. And, and unfortunately, since then, NASA's kind of become this big bureaucratic machine. And some people really think that it should be canceled permanently. Like, how is that possible? How did we go from being so jazzed about the moon to the couple of billion dollars that we need to run NASA is too much for the promise of space? Can we still do this space thing? I mean, is it too expensive? Do we really need to privatize space to get back to space? that were born by the Apollo program translated into modern terms. I don't actually know what the exchange rate was, but, but in the 1960 dollars, in the 1960s dollars for the decade of the 60s, I think the price was set at 30 billion. <laughs> I think that's over 100 billion or more now. Uh, the cost was, wasn't being borne by people saying we ought to go to the moon, it sounds like a good idea. It was being borne as a, as a military cost to prove that our system worked better than the Russian system. That was the only reason it happened. If the Russians hadn't been saying, we're going to the moon, if the Russians hadn't lifted um, uh, uh, Sputnik into orbit before we got a chance to do our first uh, preliminary primitive uh, space, uh, orbital spacecraft, that none of that would have happened. It was possible to, talk, to sell this to the American public on the ground that it was it was a defense expenditure as part of the Cold War. It wasn't a space venture, and it wasn't a simple engineering venture. It was certainly much more engineering than, than science. But um, it was really to prove the, uh, the advantages of the American system over the Russian system. That was the only reason it happened. If, there had, if that competition element hadn't been present, Apollo wouldn't have happened, and we wouldn't have gone to the moon. And so now, and so now since that element is missing, People have to justify it on the basis of some economic advantage or functional advantage to being on the moon. For example, if somebody said, well, there's gold or silver or uh, platinum or whatever on the moon in great quantity, then 
that we, that we could have a payoff. And they, they could do a balance sheet and say, this is how much the spacecraft costs, this is how much ore can be brought back, so it can be done. By the way, on that subject, <coughs> on that subject, the reason there's talk about mining asteroids is that it's cheaper to go to an asteroid, gather some minerals, and come back than it is to go to the moon. The, the difference is that when you leave the moon's surface, you have to climb out of the moon's gravitational field, which is substantial compared to an asteroid. In the case of an asteroid, you drift toward the asteroid and you get close to it and you can mine some minerals, but getting away from the asteroid again is almost cost-free because the astronaut's mass is so small. So there's actually more activity right now around uh, locating and mining asteroids uh, as a serious commercial venture than going to the moon for the same purpose. Most of the reasons for going to the moon, maybe they'd like to put a, a radio telescope on the far side where it would be much quieter than anywhere on Earth or something of that kind, or have a vacation paradise for people who are into space, which is a little bit farther, farther fetched perhaps. Nice and quiet, man. Maybe I can edit more of our podcasts if I'm on the dark side of the moon in the moon hotel, get away from the roosters over here. <laughs> You know, to me, the, the idea that we need to be better than the Russians, it brings back old memories from my childhood. And it, I guess it doesn't seem that crazy, but young people today, I don't know if it would really make that much sense. I mean, could you imagine President Obama saying that we need to go to Mars because we got to stay ahead of China? You know, I just don't feel that level of competition. And I don't think that my kids or people in their 20s feels that, that animus towards another country that we need to go and do X before that country does it. And of course, you know, there were people who were totally against this idea, and it was not an easy sell to go to the moon. Uh, most people don't realize this, but there were actually a fair amount of, uh, a fair number of, um, of objections lodged against the, the Apollo program as it unfolded during the 60s. Once somebody says, I can get to the moon and do something on the moon that is economically viable and make and turn a profit that, that the money I make is going to be greater than the cost of getting there. Once that happens, we'll be on the moon in a flash which is why we're talking about asteroids right now, because it's already possible. You can write a balance sheet and say, this is the cost of getting to such and such an asteroid. These are the materials we know are present on the asteroid that we can bring back, and we're going to make money doing it. And so that's why those programs are so far, much farther along than a similar mining program for the moon, because the moon is just farther away and more expensive. Uh, and the reason I say farther away, somebody who's going to object and say, no, 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 asteroids are way farther away. The idea is you wait for an asteroid to come nearby. Asteroids... Um, some of the asteroids have um, orbits that resemble those of comets and other similar bodies, except asteroids are characteristically different. They aren't like comets. But they do come close from time to time. And all one needs to do is wait until an asteroid gets close enough. Every once in a while, an asteroid passes closer to the Earth than the moon. At that point, it's a, it's a slam dunk. You just uh, go out somewhere closer to the moon to get minerals off an object where we're harvesting the minerals off the uh, asteroid would be much less expensive than the moon would be, and closer as well. So, no contest. Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Many thanks to Paul Ludis for taking the time to speak with us today. An interesting end note that is a sad irony on how we treat space, space exploration, 
and those technologists and scientists who worked on it. There is a award given by Reed College called the Howard Vollum Award for Science and Technology. Some of the past Vollum Award recipients include Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Linus Torvalds, Linus Pauling, and Paul Ludis. However, even though he wrote the solar system model that was used by JPL during the Viking Mars mission, Paul Ludis's Wikipedia page as of the 16th of February 2013 has been deleted because Paul Ludis is apparently no longer notable. Every episode of The Simpsons has an article on Wikipedia in exquisite detail, but space pioneers like Paul have no page at all. I really want to feel good about this idea that people are actively planning space trips. Why does it leave me hollow to think it's all about money? It is all about money. There's money on asteroids. There's poop on the moon. <laughs> it's, it's true. There is poop on the moon. I mean, but the moon is great. The moon is science. But if there's the chance that we're going to get more silicon to make more iPads and that silicon is on the moon, well, then Apple's taking us to the moon. I don't know. It just seems sad to me that we need to profit from exploration. You know, I like the MGM logo. Um, with a lion growling, and underneath uh, is the phrase "Ars gratia ars." I'm not, I can't speak Latin, so I might have got that wrong. But it means art for art's sake. I mean, can't we do space for space's sake? I absolutely think we should. We we always say things like, "Well, shouldn't we solve all our problems on Earth before we go to space?" Well, that's never going to happen. But if you look at NASA's budget versus the other kinds of things that we're putting money into, surely we can find a few billion dollars to pull this kind of thing off. I mean, it's freaking space. Let's go there. Like, why is that, why is that controversial in any way? So do you remember my friend Tamar? Uh, she was in episode 1.03 Problems. Mm -hmm. uh, she, works at, she works at NASA as a contractor, and she writes code for robots. Yeah, that is her job, right? She writes code, and her code goes into space. She sits on her laptop, she types, and things in space yep. happen. Yeah, and some of her code is up on the space station right now, powering these little things called spheres, which she's going to tell us about. And I'll tell you, it's really fascinating. Wow. I mean, what, what does it go through your mind when you're, you're earthbound, you're, you're held down by gravity, but your code, the, the product of your intellectual mind, is going into space? I mean, that would talk about job satisfaction. You know, software is software. And... Um, the nice, the really nice thing about the software that I'm doing for the work on the space station is that it's experiments. So the experiments that I'm working on, nobody's life depends on it. Um, a lot of the software that my cohorts write for the space station, people's lives depend on it. If they make a mistake, the crew that's in the space station could have a catastrophic, you know, consequence. So thankfully, I'm not part of that. Um, so the software that I am writing right now for the experiments that I'm doing, and there are two, and I can, I'll tell you about those. Um, it, it's just much less rigorous quality assurance that has to go through. Um, it does still have to comply with a very extensive 450 page user interface guideline. Um, and that's, that came out of the standpoint of, you know, we've got, 
um, astronauts from all over the world. It's an international space station. They have different language barriers. And if they're going to be operating the same software, we want to come up with some conventions um, that they can, that all the software will comply with. So that, you know, that, you know, a certain color has a certain meaning and certain icons are consistent across applications, whether they're on, uh, you know, however they're implemented. Um, there, there are then extensions as new technology comes about, but for my software, I have to comply with this. And that's uh, been about 90% of the challenge of developing this software for me. You know, the funny thing is there's rigorous project guidelines and, you know, all over the place. And so many people hate them, right? They, yeah. they just, ah, they can't stand it. But it would seem to me that forever in your job, there's this footnote that you have to just keep, like, you know, but it's going to space, you know, it's, it's space. And yeah, I try, I try really hard to remember that. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, why does this have to be so rigorous, rigorous, you know, and I could just see someone uh, sitting with me at, at the, you know, the table at NASA, you know, watching rockets take off or whatever, you know, it's the lunchroom <laughs> right at NASA and you guys are yeah. sitting there. I could imagine just sitting there with, you know, somebody who's complaining, Oh my God, I got to run another test. Oh, I hate this job. And just looking at them going, it's space, dude. Yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? It seems yeah. like it has a whole other meaning. Does it feel that way to you? Um, it, when you're in it, it's just work. <laughs> it seems ridiculous to me, but then I guess I understand, right? You know, well, the thing is, like, when you have this grand idea, like this experiment, one experiment that we're doing is we're having a crew on the space station operate one of our rovers um, down here in California at NASA Ames. Okay, so it's like a, a remote operation simulating um, exploration on the far side of the moon when we might not be able to be in direct communication with the robot. So um, we're going to learn about what, you know, how would it work if, if an astronaut were doing that. Right, so that's a that's a really nifty experiment. That's pretty cool. Um, and the fact that you know software that I write will run on the space station and it will be operated by um, an astronaut and and drive one of our rovers and um, have a three D visualization of of what the rover is thinking and where it is and give the astronaut enough information so that he or she can make the decisions and and do the experiment. Like that's that's good. And I have to keep coming back to that because day to day, I'm, you know, low level doing um, Java Eclipse software development and trying to um, fake the button out of images so that it will comply <laughs> with, with this spec. So that part of my job isn't the most fun. But I have, you know, I have to pull back and up and, and remember, well, actually, like this button. Um, an astronaut's going to click it in space. So it helps, for sure. Wow, that is something I want to do. I mean, what an amazing quote. Someone is going to be kicking, clicking my button in space. I mean, if you, can't, if, if you can't go to space, that is the next best thing, to be a part of someone being in space. See, I'm thinking that if we keep doing our show, um, maybe someone will listen to us in space at some point. Why not? That would be cool. What if that Canadian astronaut mentioned that, like, you know, oh, it was this developer's life that kept me going on the long, long trip to space. That's right. Oh, I needed to go to sleep, so I listened to Hansel Minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you used Java and Eclipse. Yep. I don't yep. know, for some reason in my mind, I'm thinking, 
you know, low level C, you know, or maybe you're actually writing the code right on the transistor board or, or wiring things yourself, but you write in Java yeah. and Eclipse. Yeah, I do. Um, we, some of our, we, uh, the group that I work in, the intelligent robotics group, um, we use in our group, we do development in C, in Python and in Java. Um, and it depends on what we're working on. Um, NASA across the centers, we tend to use Eclipse as a common framework. So a lot of the work that we have done has been based on building what's called rich client platform products or basically installed applications, thick client applications um, that run cross-platform because the different there are always different platforms that you need to work on and Eclipse, I, I love working in Eclipse, I've done it for a long time and it really provides a lot of the infrastructure that you don't have to invent yourself. Mm. So it's kind of a time saver. Um, and then because we have all this infrastructure and all these various plugins already built in Eclipse, it's possible for me to meet the schedule requirements for this project. It's the only way I could do what I'm doing. So what are you working on right now? Like w when we hang up here, you're going to go back, you're going to sit down, and what are you doing? What am I doing? So what I'm doing today is um, the first phase of this experiment where we're going to be um, having an astronaut control the robot on the ground. The first step is what we call the communications test. And so what I'm doing is building a Java command line client that will receive and record all of the telemetry messages that we'll be sending it up from the ground. Wow. Um, and I'm building this for Windows. For Windows? Yep. <laughs> which, which version? Uh, XP. Yeah. So wait a minute. Are you saying that Windows XP is running in space? Yeah. Uh huh. All oh. over. Yeah. Uh -huh. Really? Yeah. She says, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> so the the basically where our group for these experiments are, we're in kind of a funny position because we need to use the network to send data from the space station to our rover and back. And so normally when experiments are run on the space station, they're run in a very isolated way. You know, you can use a computer, but not the network. But because we have to use the network, we have to actually run on one of their systems that is like, you know, the space station system. So um, we have to really um, carefully control uh, where our software is running. So we actually are going to be running from like a, a RAM disk from a mounted hard drive that's going to just like boot our version of the operating system, load our software into that disk acting as RAM and only read and write to another network mounted drive. And so we're, we're about to do a bunch of um, performance testing to see um, which is um, more efficient running this off of a, a Linux RAM disk or a Windows one. So the other experiment is um, with um, what's called spheres. Um, and spheres are little free-flying, I'll call them robots. They're, they were developed at MIT, and then our group at NASA Ames took over them. So they don't do much. They basically can go within a particular volume. They can go from a location to location. Is this like and, Star Wars, like the training droid? Yeah. Yeah, they really are. They look kind of like that. You're they kidding me. They basically have a carbon dioxide canister in them and a very simple logic board. And the canister squirts out CO2 um, from one of the six directions. So that <laughs> makes it propel somewhere. Now, how in the world would you write 
Okay, you're going to tell me. Go on. I will tell you. So the processing, these were developed 10 years ago. And so they really are pretty, you know, basic. They do what they were designed to do and nothing else. And so when my group was um, handed these and told we could do experiments with them, uh, we wanted more compute power up there. So um, we uploaded, uh, uploaded, we upmassed um, some Android smartphones. And there it is. A simple solution. It's not too complex. I tell you, man, we're going to go to the moon and it's going to be a Raspberry Pi or some small, clean, embedded operating system, Arduino, Netduino. There is no Apple Store yet on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> Raspberry Pi and a cardboard tube. Because, you know, they're cheap computers and they have a camera and they have a screen and they have, you can have a UI on the screen. So we had to, uh, we actually were the first people to put those in space and we had to remove the, the flammable batteries that came with them and put a, a, a pack to hold AA batteries on it and do a whole bunch of testing. And we had to put Teflon tape over the screen and do all this stuff and write a procedure for the crew to to turn them on and power them up and get it all tested and safetyed and packaged and up there. And then we had to develop a cable to connect the phone to the spheres. So we did that and had to go through the same procedure. And and we're very proud that when when our smartphones got on station, they, they work perfectly. Wow. Yeah, which is incredible. So we've done uh, communications test style testing data transferring up and down from the smartphone um, to Houston, to Johnson Space Center. And um, and basically for these experiments, we're going to be Velcroing the smartphone onto the sphere and um, using an Eclipse thick client that we develop on Earth, um, simulating inspections of the space station by telling the sphere to follow a route path that we that we give to the smartphone. So basically, our software talks to the smartphone. The smartphone talks to the sphere, and then you know, <laughs> yeah. I want to say that sounds amazing, but it almost sounds like a hack, but a brilliant one. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. So the other thing that our group is working on since spheres are now ours is we're working on the next generation of the spheres. So the next generation, you know, hopefully you wouldn't have to strap on the smartphone. It would be smarter in and of itself. So wow. this way we can actually make some progress. And if you imagine like 95% um, of the time that the crew spend on the, on the ISS, they spend either maintaining themselves, their own health, or maintaining the space station. So if we can come up with things that these little free flyers can do to help them, like if from ground people can inspect the space station or do inventories or try to find things that people put in different places, mm -hmm. that can save crew time. And crew time is very expensive. Two experiments, that's about half my work. And the work that I'm most proud of is not this. Okay. Um, the, worst, the work that I'm most proud of is the work that I do that supports real science on Earth. Um, so I'm on a project that's called the Exploration Ground Data System. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we support um, both field tests and real field work where scientists are doing exploration either underwater or on the surface of Earth. Um, and potentially the moon in a few years. 
and we help them basically map their data, do route planning for where they want to explore, um, comment on what they have found and bring everything together so that they can advance science and write papers. And it, it's just incredibly rewarding um, working, working with those scientists and knowing that there's like real scientific data and information and knowledge um, because of work that I'm doing. It's just great. And, they, and they're so appreciative of the work that we do because they haven't had good systems for this. You know, they, they never have a lot of funding right for scientific research so it's not like they're going to go out and buy a multi-million dollar solution for their needs they're just going to get by with like notebooks and photographs and google earth and things like that i think that it's very easy as a software engineer to um to get sucked into your job like you oh this is cool i'm doing something technically nifty um, I'm getting paid a lot. I like the people I work with. It's a well-run company. And I think it's important to step back and think about ethically, what are you doing? Like, is what you're doing something that's ethically satisfying to you? Is it something that's, you know, furthering our people? Or are you selling widgets? Are you selling ads? And is that, is that meaningful? And I'm, I'm really lucky that I've been able to make a choice that, that satisfies me ethically. NASA, so one, one, one wonderful thing for me to work at a research institution, I'm not working at a corporation, I'm not working at a for-profit company. There's no marketing that tells me you have to ship this by Christmas or we won't make our numbers. I mean, the output is a research paper and some software that we can open source. Everything I do is just for the greater good. Everything I do is for the greater good. I love that. That is the attitude that will get us to Mars, and when we get there, we will stay there. Now, some cynics will say that everything I do should be for me, and that's the magic of capitalism. But maybe it's an old-fashioned idea straight out of the 60s, but space is exciting. Back then, this was amazing. Space was on everyone's mind, not Minecraft. Space is more amazing than my iPad. And the, the authors of the time and science fiction were alive with the speculation about what was in space and what would space hold for us. People like Ray Bradbury were writing stories that had us thinking about the promise of space. So we'll leave you today with an interview from Comic-Con 2010 recorded by Jeff Goldsmith, where a 90-year-old Ray Bradbury is still excited about space and tells us why we need to go back. One of the technologies that you have been in favor of is space exploration. Why is space exploration so important to you? Because we are going to live forever. If we go out in space, if we go back to the moon, we should never have left the moon. We should go back and build spaces. We should go back and build a base on the moon and go on to Mars, and we should put a civilization on Mars and then 500 years from now move out into the universe and when we do that we have a chance of living forever.
big thank you to the folks at Code Rush for Visual Studio for helping support this developer's life. Code Rush has the fastest rename, the fastest find all references, fastest test runner. When it comes to creating, modifying, and refactoring code, nothing's faster than Code Rush. It's been on my ultimate power tools list since forever. Get Code Rush. You'll be glad you did. Check them out at devexpress.com slash Code Rush. We appreciate their support.
Thank you.